Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Again, this morning with Shahab Jalinos. He's the head of FX Strategy at Credit Suisse and joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Let me start by asking you about a, a revision you've made here just in these last couple of days. I know uh, you you, uh, you changed your you're a dollar call here, your forecasts set for the for three months out and for 12 months out. What what prompted you to do that? Well, we were Euro bullish yeah. uh, before the French election, and then Euro rallied even more than we thought it would. Um, and, and really, the issue there is that in, in some senses, the political outlook now is better than we'd originally expected. For example, uh, Macron has not only won the French presidency, it looks likely that his party will form a, win a majority in the parliamentary elections as well. Um, and that's something that gives new drive, I would say, to uh, pro-European and pro-Euro forces uh, at, at a time when the market had spent the past couple of years worrying about the exact opposite. Um, right now, for example, central banks around the world, their holdings of, of Euro in their reserves are about as low as they've ever been. Um, so there's some big structural changes that could happen in flows that could take the euro still higher, especially if the ECB starts to hint at, ta or, well, hint more clearly yeah. <laughs> at, at tapering as well. So putting all these things together, we felt a further upgrade of the euro was in order. Uh, is there going to be less uh, emphasis placed on political risk now going forward? There's, there's talk of um, the elections in Italy. Uh, there, you know, there's talk of the parliamentary elections, as you say, in, in France, the snap election, of course, in, in the UK. Is, is that a lesser focus than these other elections have been? I think the Italian election should and will be a focus yeah. once we actually know when it is. Uh, and, and that's the problem for markets. It's, it's difficult to try and price in something you don't even have a date for yet. Um, now, the market's target for that is actually uh, around April 2018 as the most likely time it should happen. That's still some way away. And in the meantime, we're likely to have good news potentially from France, maybe good news again from Germany uh, as well if, if Angela Merkel wins the election there as well. So the, the negative news for the market seems far away right now in terms of your area politics. Uh, and that's what's driving the euro higher, helping to take it higher right now. I mentioned that OPEC deal. How are we saying, seeing that play out in the uh, the FX uh, marketplace, uh, the, the agreement that those countries came to yesterday? Well, I think the because the market had expected maybe even more than what was delivered, mm. um, what we've seen as a first reaction to that deal is actually weakness mm. uh, in the commodity currencies. Um, but at the end of the day, it's weakness relative to good expectations rather than an outright story that's very negative. Um, and so I believe that the negative impact on those currencies from this specific story will fade relatively soon. And what we ne then need to do is watch it and see how uh, the deal actually affects market prices in the medium to long term. And in particular, you know, whether OPEC can get a handle on other outside factors like shale and, and adapt its own production to, to match the, you know, the, the importance or the relevance of those developments. And those are medium to long term factors. But I think in the near term, uh, the commodity kinds have probably seen the worst of the news from this event already. 
Is it tough to make money right now? <laughs> I mean, you're you're a strategist. You're above it all. But when you look across the Credit Suisse platform, should everybody just not sell in May and go away, but just get under their desk and, you know, read foreign exchange theory books? I think foreign exchange uh, is always tricky because of the multiple different very variables uh, that can affect the currency rate. But there's still some trades, in our view, that are relatively straightforward. You mentioned euro earlier. I mentioned euro earlier. And, and if you look at euro, lots of different traditional factors are, are driving it right now. For example, we're looking at a central bank that has been very dovish that might become less dovish. So some degree of interest rate support might begin to materialize for the currency. We're looking at a, a chain of positive uh, economic developments uh, and also political developments that are feeding off each other right now uh, to create a lot well, of momentum as well. Is it G7 meets? I mean, do we get euro back to 116? Can we go back to where we were in what was it, 1989, 80, 19, you know, the advent of the euro? I think that to get to those levels is not very difficult, frankly, um, at this point in time, just because, uh, as I mentioned before, there's still many structural short positions in the euro uh, that, that have been held. Okay, so this. they clear that convexity, they clear the trade goes the other way. But is it also about just simply money flowing into Europe? It certainly is in the sense that we know that the euro area has a very large current account surplus. Um, so by definition, there has to be well, a capital account deficit to offset that. The question is, at what price does that happen? And frankly, the, the better the news is from in Europe, uh, the offsetting rate you know, moves up. And that's, that's the way it goes. So yes, there's always money going into Europe. The question is, at what price do we offset? Yeah, and David, I don't know where we are in this news flow, but Mr. Cohn, Gary Cohn, yes. is with the president at and the G7, has something yeah. to say about massaging comments about German trade. I mean, it's, this, this discussion we're having with Mr. Jalanus folks is right in the news this morning. Yeah. I'm not sure. And this was sort of a lost in translation. Yeah. Here it is. Moment, Kevin Cirillo. Yes. This is the joy of the Bloomberg folks is the news flow, <laughs> the, 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 the fire hose of, of news that we get. Uh, Gary Cohn um, saying that, yeah. that Germany is very bad on trade, but he doesn't have a problem with Germany. He said his dad is from Germany. He said, I don't have a problem with Germany. I have a problem with German trade. Let's talk about trade a little bit here. Uh, how prepared is the market for what's happening with trade or how the U.S. is pushing for changes uh, to trade? Robert Lighthizer confirmed now as the U.S. trade representative, a letter sent from the administration to Congress saying they're intending to make changes to, to NAFTA. Is the market ready for that? Well, the market has actually spent most of this year uh, buying the Mexican peso um, after having driven it to dramatically low levels based on these specific fears. So for most of this year, the market has actually toned down its interest in trade as a source of volatility uh, and bought back the currencies that it, it sold. So what I would argue there then is that uh, at this point in time, if anything, the market is, has lurched back to the complacent uh, aspect. And, and why has it done that? I think many have focused on the fact that, frankly, there's just so many businessmen uh, around Donald Trump um, and that they will somehow points out that it may not necessarily be even in the U.S.'s own favor to push some of these agendas, you know, that, that had come up in the election campaign. So from this point, I, I believe that if you do actually see uh, a more populist uh, bent towards trade policy, it would actually catch the market by surprise uh, and potentially move currencies like the Mexican peso lower again at this point. Do you buy into that argument, the notion that um, by having so many billionaires and businessmen around him, that, that does make a notional difference when it comes to how he approaches these issues? Well, certainly it creates at least a debate and yeah. a discussion about whether doing these uh, policies is the right way to go. Um, and while the market waits to see how uh, that 
arguments or, or these arguments pan out, for currencies like the Mexican peso that offer you yield, um, it gives you reasons to buy them back. It's not a great idea to be short something that's high yielding when it's indeterminate at what point in the future the bad news you're worried about is going to come through. Um, having said that, you know we have to we have to be careful because it's not just the U.S. that's seeing populism right now. Mm. So, for example, Mexico itself has a presidential election next year. Um, there's gubernatorial elections uh, in June as well for Mexico City. And there's there's populists in Mexico too, a, a strong showing by, by those types of candidates, and the peso could fall for, for Mexico's own reasons. So uh, I would say that uh, it's, it's worrisome in the sense that we, this could spread beyond the U.S. potentially and become more of a, a proper trade yeah. war if, we, if we're not careful. David Gurr and Tom Keen on a Friday. Thrilled you're with us. We're going to frame the Friday for you. It's actually a pretty ugly tape. Curve flattening, massive, 94.68 with lower yields, two basis points on the 10-year and the in the equity market sort of behind all this uh, gyration. What a good time to speak with Shop Jalanus of Credit Suisse because unlike most FX people, like Cinch maybe over at Amherst Pierpont, there's a few others, he links in the other markets. If I say to you, Shab, as we were in the break, and folks, I'll put this chart out on Twitter, curve flattening, how does a guy like you treat U.S. 210 spread curve flattening and fold that into the FX space? Well, I think it's, it's uh, very important uh, when you look at the dollar against currencies like the yen and the euro, uh, in the sense that that curve flattening is telling you that the market is downgrading its longer-term growth expectations for the U.S. Uh, it may well be doing that because of the uh, diminished odds of very rapid tax reform, for example, in the U.S., and uh, the kind of policy changes the market was hoping would boost long-term growth. They just don't seem to be happening quickly. And what that means is that when you compare the dollar against a currency like the yen, a low-yielding currency, as the dollar loses that longer-term yield support, uh, the yen will want to go up against the dollar, especially because uh, many believe that the yen is, in any case, undervalued to start with. So we, we're targeting 107 yeah. and dollar yen, and that, that supports that view for us. Yen strength. David, you've got to take over. I'm going to tear up this chart. It's so elegant. <laughs> we can't wait to see it on Twitter, then. Uh, let me ask you, you, one of your notes is entitled here, Signal versus Noise. You mentioned the political noise that we've had. How do you figure out what to listen to in this environment when you're, when you're listening to what's coming out of Washington? What's, what's most relevant? I think the way we do that is really by first determining which signals, let's say, from, from the politics have actually already had a price impact mm -hmm. um, and then determining how those are likely to go. And we try to ignore the, the, the rest of the, the, the uh, story that's out there. So, for example, we know that coming into this year, the market believed that there was going to be uh, infrastructure spending in the U.S., that there would be tax reform in the U.S., that these things would happen. There was so quickly. much optimism. There was a lot so of optimism. A few months ago. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, these were all tangible stories that the market had priced in yeah. to, to the currency story. So once you see a lack of delivery uh, on, on those stories, you know that this is going to have a currency impact. Now, of course, there's a lot of other stories in the background as well, but we know that they weren't really affecting the markets. Uh, and unless we have a reason to believe they, they could, we tend to ignore those and focus on the ones that we know were in the price already and can be priced out. Basically. Tom and I complain, to be fair, we're not working in a, in a coal mine here, but um, the, the, the amount of news flow is 
crazy and exhausting. Are you finding that to be the case in your line of work as well, that sorting through all of this has gotten more complex, or at least there's more of, more of it to sort through? Well, I think what's really changed from a currency perspective is the U.S. Uh, is now a source of uh, currency volatility as well in its yeah. own right f due to the political angle. In, in the past 20 years, mostly we just had to worry about what the Fed was doing, mm -hmm. and that was about it. And all the political noise was coming from the other side of the, of the FX pair, whether that's Brazil um, or, or the U.K. with Brexit. It, you know, generally, the volatility was coming from somewhere else. Now, as well as worrying about those issues, we also have to worry about U.S. Po politics as well. We have to understand the nuances of how the House can pass health care reform and whether the Senate's going to like that or not and what kind of timelines there are. So this has definitely added complexity to the, to the problem uh, in terms of absorbing information and trying to make assessments of these issues. One element of that complexity, I'm sure, is still this policy divergence between central banks here in the, the U.S. And, and in Europe. Looking ahead to these next two meetings, what are you looking for in terms of that effect and how it's going to, to play in the FX space? Well, I think from the ECB, the market's baseline expectation now from for, for a, for a minimum is that the ECB removes the language uh, suggesting that the risks are still to the downside, whether it's to do with the economy, prices, or even where the level of rates are going to go. Minim at a minimum in June, we need to see that removed. Um, if we don't, then I think the euro will have a, a bit of a setback. Um, now, for the euro to rally based on the June ECB meeting, what we'll need is more acknowledgement that things <coughs> are actually going well, and maybe some kind of a plan as to how tapering is, is right. actually going to begin in 2018. If we get that, uh, and I think the market really expects that more in September, if we get that in June, the euro can start right. to rally even further from here. I can't afford the Zweigel red and white hot dogs on the Barbie for Memorial Day. I need to make some money on a Friday. Where's the best trade right now? Well, I, I, as we still like euro sterling higher. We still think that uh, going into the UK election at this point in time, um, with the polls tightening. So euro sterling is weaker sterling, stronger euro? Exactly, yes. Because sterling does not have any yield supports that, that's material, basically, yet does pose lots of political risk going into an election where the market saw it as a slam dunk just, just a week ago that the Conservatives would win easily, and that story is now changing. Um, that, you know, combined with the fact that the ECB meeting in June does pose potentially some upside risk for euro as well, uh, will keep the market, I think, on this higher euro against sterling trend uh, for yeah. the next couple of weeks. You'll be pleased to know, Shahab, I put out that 210 spread Climbing moving average, right. Gorgiosity out on Twitter. Gorgiosity. At Tom Keane. At Tom Keane. Yes. It'll be out at David Gura. I'll retweet it. Let's go. It's maybe Neil <laughs> Soss will look at it. Be sure you have Kleenex if Dr. Soss uh, looks at it this morning. Shab Jalanus with Credit Suisse, of course, working with their vice chairman of research, Neil Soss, um, as well. Very, very beneficial. Jeffrey Rosenberg, who has a well-timed essay reevaluating reflation. He is with BlackRock. We love to speak to him about the synthesis of his uh, work. Jeff, what does a flatter yield curve mean to Chair Yellen? 
So, you know, we've got to be a bit careful about the typical kinds of interpretations of, of flatter yield curves in an environment where the front end of the yield curve is, is effectively very close to zero. In, in, in the zero interest rate environment, the, the, the movement in terms of risk on and risk off uh, shows up in, in the back end of the yield curve. So it's a little bit different kind of environment where a, a negative environment would be one in which you price out. Fed tightening expectations, and you price in easing expectations, and you get a yield curve steepener. Here, when you got the front end basically not moving, the back end flattening is, is, is pricing in a bit more about, hey, maybe some of this geopolitical risk, maybe this slowdown in the first quarter, maybe the slowdown that we see in inflation, that's going to slow the pace of appreciation. Yeah. Pace of normalization, and and that's partly why you're getting this this flattening. So here's the key question on a Friday. Are you more focused, Mr. Rosenberg, on the x-axis and the when of all this, or are you more focused on the y-axis and the immediacy of the up-and-down movement, which is more germane right now? Well, you, you know, there's a, there's a lot of noise to the up-and-down movement, and I think the key here is the Fed is telling you they're going to look through the near-term up-and-down movement. They're, they're, they've moved away from data dependency and telling you that they're focused on the x-axis in your formulation in the up-and-down movement. There was a time in which they said, we're going to focus on the near-term data, and, and then, therefore, you should focus on the near-term data. Clearly what they're saying, you said, saw it again in the minutes, this week, they're focused on their forecasts. And their forecasts are saying we're going to look past the near-term data to what we think the underlying trend of economic growth, inflation, labor market dynamics means. And their conclusion is it means that we can get on and keep going on with normalization. So that's what I'm focused on. What, what color did we get on that from the, the Fed this week, from the minutes that the, that the board released? Did you, did you get the clarity that you might have wanted uh, about that, uh, their sense of what unwinding is going to be like? We got a, a lot of conversation around inflation, and I would say on that side of it, and that may be as well some of the market moves, it was a, there was a little bit more, even though I just said that they're yeah. focused on their forecasts, what happens in the minutes is that you hear from everybody. And so there's a little bit of noise around what will the committee do versus what do the individual participants think. And what we heard in the minutes was there's a distribution, and you heard a lot more from the participants relative to what I was expecting in terms of some consternation about inflation. You, you, you saw one participant commenting on they, they need more evidence that in, inflation will reach the 2%. We have to separate that kind of communication from the official FOMC communication, which really reflects the core where there really is this forecast dependency and they're looking through. But we got a bit more uh, uh, of that inflation concern. Uh, I'll pause there and then we'll pivot maybe. And then, of course, the big thing in the minutes was the discussion on the balance sheet. You know, I, I wonder if, 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 if you're not seeing a breaking down of the underlying reflationary dynamic, what, what's all of this about? Is it about politics more so than that? 
It's it's a combination, you know. And in the minutes they talked as well, you know, it was sort of coded foreign yeah. political developments. It was the market was was very concerned about the French elections, and that has come and come and gone. But but in the minutes at the time, you know, that was certainly part of the story. Uh, and and you have the accumulation of a number of these different events. One of the other critical things uh, the minutes didn't highlight in, in this context, but it's been written about by Federal Reserve. Um, uh, uh, staff research, and, and it's certainly a, a market phenomenon, is, is that bonds are, are, are very useful in a portfolio context. Yeah. They're, they're very useful as diversifiers and, and risk reducers. And in an environment where you saw some of this risk go up, you, you saw an increase uh, in the use of, and, and again, here at the old world, it would have been flight to quality as a curve steepener. Here, you, you, the flight to quality is you put it on well, more in the 10-year, and you get the Flatter. Within the guesstimate of this, and Jeffrey, you always frame it so nicely, seriously, folks, with a quantitative framework that you get out of Carnegie Mellon. But, but uh, Jeffrey Rosenberg, what I know is in seven days at 8.06 a.m. Wall Street time, we're 24 minutes from a jobs report. Are we going to see wage growth? We are going to see wage. We let, let's put it this way: we are seeing wage growth. We have all the conditions for wage growth. Now, whether we're going to see wage growth in that average hourly earnings figure in a week and twenty-three uh, minutes from now, uh, that's statistical noise. There's a lot of measurement difficulties, and the market on a short-term, high-frequency basis struggles with the near-term versus the the noise versus the signal. But if you look at the signal, which is you know going across all all the various measures of wage inflation that we have, not just the average hourly yeah. earnings, which is sort of notably des- has a design issue, which is which is it doesn't account for Fair. how the mix Fair. of the yeah. people yeah. that we're looking through changes. Uh, it's very clear that we, we are in the phase of acceleration when it comes to wage inflation. And again, that's why one of the reasons why the Fed is, is saying we need to get on with normalization because we've achieved full employment. Okay, we don't but- have to get on with normalization quickly because of the inflation side, but we need to get on with it. But then are you willing to say we get okay wage growth with a lack of reflation, a tepid or tamed inflation, and does that lead to the consumer pop that the president needs to get the 3% sustained GDP? Well, okay, so everything, yes, you have, you have, wage, uh, you have wage growth, you have good labor market income, so both the combination of job growth, people getting jobs, a higher employment rate, higher wage growth for that. The, the, the total of that is, is income growth. You have income growth and wage growth exceeding inflation, so you've got real income growth, you've got confidence, and you've got wealth effect. All of those pieces point towards a recovery in consumption, a lot of conversation about first quarter weakness, that's going to that's going to recover. However, you, you mentioned a 3% level. We, we haven't seen a 3% level in this economy, and we're unlikely to see a 3% economy unless you have a larger shift in the structural elements to the economy. That can come from some bigger fiscal policy changes. But those are as the minutes in the Fed describes, highly yeah. uncertain as to their quantity, quality, and timing. So you can't really, it's not my forecast that we're going to be breaking out of this 2% kind of growth, certainly on a quarter-to-quarter quarter basis. That's the noise of shifting. Yeah. Q2 GDP is going to be 3 3% 3, uh, potentially. But, but over the course of the year, now we're still in that kind of 2% type right. real GDP range. Jeff Rosenberg, 
I, I want to give you an open question. I know you're writing for next week um, as well. If Chair Yellen listens to the PhDs at the Fed, what does she want to know? That's a loaded question. But what's the mystery for the smart people at the Fed right now? Well, the the stuff that the the, the staff uh, provides and 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 it's it's fairly transparent too. You know, the the, the Fed is has a has a model. It's called the Furbis model. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a model of how the macroeconomy works and how different policy choices affect the the outcomes of the Fed's dual mandate and and the and the mystery uh, if you will of what that is trying to, to to guide her on is what's the best path for Fed normalization. It's called the optimal control path. And, and one of the constraints that, that the Fed has is that, you know, long, we're, we're long past the point where um, th- th- there's a lot of slack in the economy where the Fed can, can be very, very accommodative without the, the model starting to show some risks of overshooting on the inflation side. Now, this is a tricky conversation because, you know, the data, the near-term data, inflation's going in the opposite direction. So one of the communication challenges that, that the Fed has is that the, the, the model approach, what the state of the economy yeah. is at, is one in which there's, there's a scenario in which uh, the in- inflationary outcomes could start to accelerate if the Fed doesn't start to, to really begin normalization. And that's where you hear right. them talking about why they need to get on with it. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Too short this morning. Jeffrey Rosenberg is with BlackRock. That was a great answer about how inflation's going one way and the Fed's going the other Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. John in Avalon. John lives David Gura in one of those like $12 million homes. It's down the Jersey Shore. Like, you know, there's a West Wing, there's a further West Wing. 15 fireplaces. Yeah, I think. exactly. Yeah. And then and nobody ever uses them in July. John emails in with maybe the smartest question of the week. What's the difference between 2 and 3% GDP? Because it's 1%. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal at what's called at the margin. 
And the pros don't look at 1%. They look at tenths of a percent. And 2.8% GDP is behaviorally can, can behaviorally be very different, David, than 2.6% GDP. That's why we spend all this time on this. But that's the question of the week. I don't know which wing of his house he was in, but John in New Jersey, <laughs> thank you for uh, emailing in. Julian Emanuel uh, with this. I mean, it's a great question. Pros, you know, we don't even think about it. We so, just say, you know, 2.2%. But every tenth of a percent really matters, doesn't it? Absolutely. We have been desensitized over the last seven or eight years because all the numbers that we're looking at are so low. Interest rates near zero. GDP growing below 2%. Volatility yeah. now below 10 <clears throat> That the, the real thought there is the difference between 2 and 3% GDP isn't 1%. It's 50%. Yeah. And so it's the right. And Stan Fisher mentioned this in one of his Economic Club of New York speeches is what you just heard. There is the math of Julian Emanuel's world. I just want to say, David Gura, that John in New Jersey is desensitized as well because his house only plays John Bon Jovi <laughs> the whole time. He plays nothing else. He's a true New Jersey guy. Greatest bon hits. Jovi 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, Julian, let me get your outlook for, for growth here. As we're on the, we're on the subject of, of growth here, what's, what's your outlook for what we're going to see? Again, we had the White House trumpeting their, their budget this week. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, was on Capitol Hill again talking about the prospects for getting to 3% growth. I thought it was interesting hearing from Mick Mulvaney, the head of the Office of Management and Budget. He said that Trumponomics defined is aspiring to get to 3% growth. That narrative continues. Are we going to see anything close to that, do you think? Well, the aspiring is great, and the aspiring has been part of, of why confidence has remained so high, and we are seeing a very small amount of that confidence uh, bleed into uh, better growth. But we're of the view that the number is closer to the Fed's projection. The Fed's looking at 2.1 for 2017. UBS thinks 2.2 percent, uh, slightly higher in 2018, uh, with the potential for fiscal stimulus and tax reform to actually hit in 2018, 2.5% uh, is the number. But 3% in this type of world is is a long way off. Yeah, I think the, the same way that we talk about growth, 2% or 3%, we talk about the VIX being low or complacent. It is where it is. Let's get existential here. Why is it the way it is? Why are we where we are when it comes to, to the VIX? Well, in, in a lot of ways, it goes back to the confidence that we've seen versus the positioning that we saw at the end of last year where people rushed into the Trump trade, the reflation trade. And the reality is, is that the economy hasn't really performed towards that 3%. And so therefore, what you've seen, rather than people selling their stocks, there's still a belief that somewhere out in the future, we are going to accelerate. But you've seen a rotation into growth, into technology. Technology is, has really been exceptionally uh, a performer, um, healthcare, et cetera. And that has caused the right. index vol to go nowhere. It's 835 Wall Street type, Julian Emanuel. You know they're being written right now for release at 5 p.m. today. The world's going to come to an end. The Dow is 21,083. This bull market is baloney, blah, 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 blah. How do you as a pro respond to the doom and gloom Friday set of articles? No, it, it, it's uh, – look – Every bull market of the last 25 to 30 years has ended because a recession happened within 12 months of the top. I, I, it's very difficult to see uh, the recipe for a recession in either 17 or 18. 
And, you know, while we're not, you know, ragingly pie in the sky in terms of uh, between now and year end, we think there's uh, some caution appropriate with a VIX at 9 or 10 uh, that may be uh, in store. We do think the bull market continues. No can, can you acquire shares this morning? I'm serious. I mean, I don't want to make jokes about it. I don't mean individual companies. But just as a general statement, you walk in the door at UBS, can you buy shares? You have to be uh, selective here. You, you uh, fair. I'll you, go with that. But, but the Your answer lawyer is wants yes. you to say that. I get that. But the answer is you can get out a buy ticket. You, people don't know this, Michael. Julian Emanuel walks in here with a vest like Ace Greenberg years ago with buy tickets on the left <laughs> side and sell tickets on the right side. You can pull out a buy ticket today, right? Well, that was because I was, I was on the floor in that time when we actually had to use paper once upon a time. But yes, really, but you have to be selective. Technology we continue right. to like. Healthcare. Okay. Is- Let me bring back Julian Emanuel now. He's the U.S. Equity and Derivative Strategist at UBS, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. You've written about planning the trade and trading the plan. What does that mean? Help, help us understand uh, your approach here to, to, to investing in equities at this point. Well, it, it, it's really sort of a holistic approach, right? You know, if, if you are a patient investor, you should have been participating in this most hated of all bull, yeah. bull markets the entire way. And, and the temptation is because of the fact that volatility seems to be so low, that markets are uh, at new highs – Despite the fact that there are risks out there, and clearly if you look at the last year, a lot of them have been political in nature, but this is not the time to get carried away uh, by emotion and really have an idea in mind that what you want to do consistent with the last eight years is position yourself so you're a buyer of the dips. Uh, so not to be overextended at new highs. And, and that really is the essence of planning the trade and trading the plan. What did you counsel clients last week when we saw the VIX spike uh, a, a little bit and for, for a short while? Uh, yeah, good how, question. How do you navigate this? And then this it reversed. The yeah. other idea is it spiked to greater fear, David. Yep. And then it, shock, a shock. Look at where it ended up yep. Wednesday. Yeah. That, that was a surprise to us. It, it just it really there is an element of, uh, of that Greek term called hubris. Uh, which is why I think, uh, again, the markets are where they are and volatility is where it is. But but at the end of the day, you have to maintain your discipline okay. here, selectivity. Your research notes are hyper-sophisticated. They are to a CFA-type institutional audience. Our listeners this morning who are in the market, they want to be in the market, but what we heard all this week from a wide set of guests, it's still the most unloved bull market. How do you get in if you're not in the game now? Don't tell me you just buy Apple. No, you don't just buy Apple. Um, you, you have to be, again, very selective. You can't, you can't put all your or chips in one basket. Uh, we think Europe is a very good theme. It's been, been a laggard. You want to you wanna own uh, some international exposure. Uh, domestically, we do like technology. Uh, we like healthcare, And we like financials. Financials have gone from darlings in January to universally unloved at this point. And we think, given the fact that if you look at uh, 10-year yields uh, and, and an economy that does seem to be progressing, that may be a little bit misguided. Yeah, I'm doing the math here, David, right now uh, that you can only do in the Bloomberg Professional Service. J.P. Morgan is in an absolute bear market. It's down 8.67% from the March peak. 
I mean, that's how bad it is, David. You know, you got Julian Emanuel, considered pro, saying the financials have lagged a little bit, and it's off 8.7%. You mentioned European equities, and so many people have come through here saying that recently, that there's opportunity in Europe. If you're being selective, if you're looking for opportunity in Europe, what are you looking toward right now? It's the more deeper uh, cyclical type areas, uh, autos, um, chemicals, dare I say, financials. Um, it, it is, it's, it's all predicated on this notion that, again, going back to what we talked at, uh, earlier, is that the difference between a GDP of 1.4% and 1.7%, uh, which is where we think we're going in Europe, is massive, and, and, and the leverage inherent in those yeah. kinds of companies is where we want to be. What about small cap, large cap? I mean, by, by demand from your customers, you have to live in a large cap world. But what about the nuance of small cap, mid cap, large cap right now? Well, the, small cap has traded expensive relative to uh, large cap for most of the last several years. That is correcting. Uh, we've seen absolutely no progress in the Russell 2000 since December. And frankly, we'd prefer to see some progress because the, mm -hmm. the concentration of positioning in large cap technology versus the rest of the space is, is yeah. definitely a concern. Great, very valuable on a Friday. Julian Emanuel with uh, UBS. Now to Ashil Ankar. Now he's global head of asset allocation and risk management at Janus Capital. Writes often for Bloomberg View with uh, Nobel laureate Myron Scholes as well, uh, who is also at Janus Capital now after a distinguished career at Stanford University. And Ashil Ankar joins us now on our phone lines. Want to talk about the economy and options and all of that. But let's start with cross normalization. Help me with the term here, Ash, if you would. What does it mean? Good morning, David. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, so cross-normalization, we, we talk a lot about normalization and interest rates and monetary policy here in the U.S., um, but another part of normalization is getting the relative value um, and relative lending rates between countries, between continents, to converge to more normal levels. Um, what has perplexed many since 2008, um, hedge funds, real money, etc., has been the resilient spread between very, very low German rates and much higher U.S. rates. Um, it's perplexed many why that spread not only continues to remain large, but gets larger. Um, and one point or another over the past many years, um, many people have bet and, and put on an investment predicting that this spread would converge. And so in many ways, um, I consider this the modern-day widowmaker trade. Um, but today... What we see happening um, through, based on through how the option markets are pricing risk in the interest rate markets, we see this spread starting to converge. Um, we see a tipping point. And there's many reasons why this tipping point uh, is happening right now. The most important reason is from a macroeconomic perspective, the numbers in Europe are strengthening, why the numbers in the U.S. are softening. Right. Um, 
So uh, but we think that, that spread, which stands right about 200 basis points now, um, you, right. you, you could very quickly see that converge. Even when we speak with a chemical engineer out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, we avoid Greek letters on Friday, Ash. So let's try oh, no. to let's try to. Have I can't this. talk about downside gamma. <laughs> let's 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 try to get through this without killing ourselves on a Friday. Your research with Myron Scholes, one of the giants of the business, is exceptionally important. Yeah. And what mm-hmm. this is about is when Germany comes out of a negative rate environment and whatever we do to normalize, do our, our, our glide pass, our, our day-to-day path of global Wall Street, is it done with stability or with really ugly movements within the markets? Which is it going to be? We think with stability. We think with moderation. Um, we think that the Fed uh, and the ECB, they're at a point. They're actually at a very good point where they can start acting a bit strategically. Um, and what I mean by that is they realize that they have fired all of their bullets, and they need to reload those bullets, reload those monetary tools um, right. as a hedge in case something really bad happens going forward. If yields, um, this is critical. If yields go up either in the yep. U.S. or from the negative space in Germany or the yep. twenty-year Swiss franc, whatever, when the yep. yield goes up, I believe the price goes down. Are the losses on those transatlantic bond portfolios? Are they a second and third order function, or are they front and center for you and Myron Scholes? Uh, they're second and, and third order, in our opinion. Um, we don't believe that the market is so fragile that it can't handle um, interest rates at one or overnight lending rates at 100 basis points, for example. Um, so, so we don't really see this being a trigger or a catalyst for a sharp correction in markets. Though in Germany and in Europe, they do have to be careful here because Europe is an economy that relies on exports. The euro currency versus the dollar will trade on front-end rates. So if the ECB starts raising, the euro will start appreciating. Right. And that has a negative effect on the economy. But Draghi has played this out brilliantly, and the ECB has played this out brilliantly by suggesting that their course of action of normalizing, uh, normalizing uh, this ultra-accommodative uh, policy stance will first take the form of stopping bond purchases. Okay. Right? So they're going to keep that front end low. Hence, that will limit any sharp okay. appreciation in the euro. To go to your option work in the quantitative finance, there's a thing folks called gamma, which is basically accelerating if you're on yeah. 59th Street, which is being repaved right now, and you <laughs> put your foot on the gas pedal. Yep. That's acceleration into the next marginal pothole. Tell me about the potholes <laughs> of gamma. What's the mass of short-term paper, which Mr. Scholz, I would respectfully suggest, is familiar with? What is mm-hmm. the size of that short-term paper, and does Gamma crush it when we finally move? Well, so for so Gamma, like, like you talk, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about Greeks today. Yeah, no, we're doing it. That's right. So, so Gamma is that, that acceleration. In the bond markets... Many of the holders of this paper are buy-and-hold holders who are immunizing liabilities. Right. So think insurance companies, think pension funds. And they're big enough. They're they're so big that they are the marginal buyer. They are the price setter. And they're not going to move 
uh, if interest rates move, because their assets and liabilities will move in the same direction. So that they're somewhat, I'll use another term here, they're delta heads. Okay, delta heads, that's it. You're cut off. <laughs> Ashwan L. Ankert with Janice, riding with Myron Schultz. We're going to come back Greek letter free. That was great. Ashwan L. Ankert with us, with Janice. He's written a really smart essay, uh, Bloomberg View essay, Option Signal Pragmatism May Trump America First. Smart, smart essay. With Myron Scholes, one of the truly iconic names you know at Wall Street from Black Scholes. And it's just a really, really smart essay. Ash, I want to open up the dialogue here to the work of Nassim Taleb and the basic idea that we all go to school. And of course, there's a zillion people now cramming for the CFA exam, which I believe is next Saturday. And that it's a Gaussian world, folks. It looks like that bell curve of your height of your high school class. And Mr. Taleb, among others, would say, no, it's a world of rare events, black swans, which is not a normal or Gaussian distribution, but a French thing, the Poisson distribution. Think about Little Mermaid, ooh la la, uh, uh, la Poisson, la Poisson, the Poisson <laughs> distribution. And the bottom line, Ash, is we talk all day like it's a Gaussian world, and Taleb is correct. No, there are rare events out there that get in the way. What have you learned about rare events in the last few years? So rare events are exactly the correct description of the global capital markets. And what we've learned is the rare events, the unexpected, is becoming more expected. It's becoming more frequent. Um, What's driving risk premiums, what's driving positioning, isn't what we believe might happen in a normal world, what we believe will happen on average. But what's driving risk aversion is what we fear is happening in the extremes. Mm -hmm. And even though that's come to light more so now than any period historically with Brexit, with Trump's win, et cetera, et cetera, so these these one-off political events, historically, and this is quite – this puzzled me and I would say even puzzled Myron a bit. Historically, almost all of the risk premium – to almost every single asset class is explained right. by the extremes. There is, within Myron Scholl's work, a basic math, folks. Here it is, one over the square root of two pi. Forget about that. There'll be no pop quiz on a Friday. But the foundation of the modeling of Black Scholl's is that normal distribution. Would you suggest that within your work with Myron Scholl's, that Professor Scholl's is moving away from the certitude of a normal world with a little more respect for what we see within rare events? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So Black-Scholes did assume for mathematical tractability that the world is normal. Yes, fair. But the underlying tenet of Black-Scholes, the underlying purpose of options, is to allow market participants to buy insurance. So by that very fact that option contracts serve the role of providing insurance, you implicitly, or I would even say okay. explicitly, are making the case it's the rear events okay, that Alan, options are useful for. Well said. Alan Greenspan said the same thing before and after the crisis. Have we learned anything since 2007? I think what we have learned uh, is that, one, market prices are smart. Um, the market is smart. Um, market prices provide a lot of information to help guide where pockets of stress are building, but more important, or just as important, where pockets of opportunity lie. So, well, whereas Nassim Taleb talks about the black swan, 
rare events also are rare events to the upside, and you can't ignore those mm-hmm. as well. Right, So the, you have to think about tail risk or the extreme, both in terms of the risk of extreme loss, but also the risk of extreme gain. And you do not want to sit on the sideline if a right tail or a big move up is eminent, which a lot of us did in 2013. Right? If you remember back in 2013, no one believed in the market rally. Everyone was light on risk exposure. Yeah. And then the markets ripped up 40 50%. So even though you pull on Bloomberg, on Bloomberg, you pull up the screen of 2013, everything looks green. Everything looks uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But many of us don't have fond memories of 2013 because we suffered the tail risk of failing to participate on the upside. Right. Well said. They so have to think about both. Yeah. Ash, what's the options market telling you about the viability of the, the economic plans that were at least outlined in broad strokes by, by this president? What, what's, it, what's it telling you about their viability or, or you know, what participants think may happen? Excellent question. Um, it's somewhat contrary to what a lot of people are talking about right now, which is these um, uh, the, 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 this involvement with Russia, the, the, these Russia dealings are distracting the Trump administration from their pro-growth agenda. But the option market is telling us something exactly opposite. It, it's telling us the pragmatic thinking of Trump and his administration will prevail. And how it's telling us this, and how we're inferring this conclusion, is the option market is assigning much greater upside mm-hmm. to U.S. small caps versus U.S. large caps. Um, and who's going to benefit from tax breaks? Who's going to benefit from infrastructure? Right. So your, your bet is large businesses. cap. Is your bet large cap? No, our bet is small cap. Okay, you're going to go with the options pricing. Yeah, we're going, we go yeah, okay. with the options prices. So we, we okay. being uh, good citizens of technology, we believe in okay. the power of crowdsourcing. Oh, good. I, I believe in the power of what leverage can do to somebody's wallet when yeah. things go ugly. Ah. Where are you and Myron Scholes on the use of leverage right now? Is it an over-levered system, even when you put central bank action into it? Um, we don't think the market is, is, is over-levered. Um, if you look at – there was a great report which came out uh, by Morgan Stanley, which showed within their high net worth – um, private yeah. client uh, business, private clients. Um, so these are people, call it $500 million and above. In yeah, court. like me and Dave. They're holding, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, like myself, <laughs> divide that by, by 100. Um, um, they are um, holding close to 10 to 15% cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people are still yeah. holding on to a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. So if you're holding on to a lot of cash, it's very, yeah. very difficult for the market to correct. Okay, Ashwin, and we thank Michael Wilson and Morgan Stanley for his work with us earlier this week. This has been phenomenal. Ashwin Alenker, thank you so much. With Janice, with Myron Scholes, a terrific Bloomberg View essay and options. David, was that too nerdy? Well, I was sitting I really, back taking notes. You know, I thought it was great. I, I, it's interesting. I, I really would say, folks, I can't say enough how the way to gently get into this is a Nassim Taleb classic, not black swan, not anti-fragile, which is brilliant, but fooled by randomness. Uh It is his first effort. It's the least mathy. It also is incredibly funny, but you want to go back and start in with fooled by randomness, Nassim Taleb. It was a jewel when it came out and it's still a jewel uh, to this day. That was fabulous. I'll Thank flag you. as well. Uh, Eric Schatzko, our colleague Eric Schatzko, sat down with Nassim at the SALT conference last yeah, week. It was yeah. a, a rare and a great interview on, yeah. on television. So Absolutely. check that out if you didn't see it. Oh, that was great. So that's our quantitative finance for 2017. We're done. <laughs> <laughs>
right retire the, the Greek letters. That's it. Negative yeah. 20, 21,063, <laughs> negative 20, uh, and the VIX 10.02. Uh, I should go back and do an old quote. J.P. Morgan, 85 and a quarter, up one quarter. Citigroup up three-eighths. Joining us now, uh, great to have with us is Brian Kelly. He's known as the points guy. He joins us on our phone lines. Brian, great to speak with you, uh, as always. Let's start with the tips about how to approach this weekend in particular. Got one of our producers writing in, tweeting, saying he's at LaGuardia. There's chaos, delays, overbooked flights. How do you fix this? What's the approach you take when traveling over a holiday weekend? Yeah, things are really messy, especially traveling throughout New York this weekend. Uh, you know, flights, if your flight gets canceled, I highly recommend, uh, you know, instead of waiting in a really long line at the airport, try to reach out to airlines on social media. Uh, they have special teams that can actually rebook you uh, much quicker than waiting in line. And if the phone lines are really, really long, here's a trick. You can actually call the, the, the number in Mexico. They have English-speaking agents, and they can usually, you'll get right through. So instead of waiting an hour or two hours like a lot of the airlines have, you can uh, call foreign numbers. To, to kind of jump the line. I, I love that. that <laughs> valuable tip I will definitely uh, employ. Brian, when, when, you, when you look at all that's available to travelers today when it comes to frequent flyer programs and, and special premium programs, what makes the biggest difference? I had to fly to Boston on Monday. I, I, I noticed and scowled at those next to me who were moving through quickly, who were going through because of clear or something else that was identified on, on their tickets. What works and what doesn't? What's worth paying for now to get through the airport faster? for global entry, which also gets you TSA pre-check. But as you mentioned, CLEAR is also expanding. CLEAR is a biometric screening process that actually allows you to jump the TSA pre-check line. Uh, so, you know, if you're in an airport that has long, uh, a lot of airports don't manage the pre-check lines well. So uh, the CLEAR program, I think it's about $100. Uh, some frequent flyer programs even give it to you for free. And then when coming into the U.S., you know, global entry is great. But also, if you don't have global entry, sign up for mobile passport. Most people don't realize that you can get it. It's an app that actually lets you take your picture and go through a kiosk almost as quickly as global entry. So uh, if you're traveling internationally, you must get mobile passport. Thank you. That's a great tip. I have not seen that. I don't have global entry, folks. I, I can't. I, I, think I, I try to sign up and they go, you have your appointments in, you know, February of next year. Uh, Brian, and I've said this before, that Mr. Kelly certainly changed the life of our household in trying to make sense of how to get around the world. Brian, there's been a real theme on your wonderful website about we're becoming revenue-based, that the airlines are looking at the insanity of the Brian Kelly world, and they're saying, if you don't give us money, you don't get benefits. Where are we going to be in two years or five years? Is it just about revenue-based? Well, I mean, I see loyalty shifting away from airlines and into credit cards instead. You know, as you said, they're not really frequent flyer programs anymore. They're frequent spender programs. So, you know, with Chase and now there's a ton of competition in that premium card market. U.S. Bank just launched a new credit card that's pretty lucrative. UBS is launching, a, you know, a, a credit card that's, you know, marketed towards affluent consumers. So consumers have a ton of choices with credit cards. And so it's, instead of giving your loyalty to an airline, it's, it's still all about the credit cards. And that's the, uh, the, the way I see the, the market moving. I'm, I'm looking at your, your website now at thepointsguy.com. I see that you, you value points through these different programs. How do you go about doing that? How do you assign worth to, to frequent flyer miles? You know, it's really difficult because, well, 
some credit card programs are easy. They'll give you like one cent per point when you redeem for travel or a little bit more. You know, the, the traditional frequent flyer programs are hard because, you know, if you're like me, you can figure out how to maximize uh, these chart-based programs. So, you know, in a way, a lot of the programs, they don't peg the value of your award to the cost of the ticket. So you can still, to this day, book, you know, $10,000 first-class tickets for, you know, 50,000 miles in certain programs. It's getting harder and harder, but uh, when we value the miles, we try to assess the value that an average consumer could reasonably get, right, without having to spend, you know, 50 hours of time researching how to, how to maximize. What determines for these frequent flyer programs how a deal is, is created? I look at the British Airways deal right now, 24 times the Avios points per dollar spent. Now, why is that happening now? Why, why, why do they pick a certain time of year to do deals like those? A lot of people don't realize that you can earn a ton of frequent flyer miles by shopping online. So my biggest tip is never go directly to a retailer's website. Always click through either an airline mileage uh, shopping portal or cash back. And simply put, they, they give frequent flyer mile bonuses to incentivize people to shop. Uh, you know, it's, it's really just an affiliate deal where these shopping portals get a cut of any sale that you make, and they give you a rebate in the form of frequent flyer miles. So, uh, mm. so yeah, right now there's 24 miles at a, at a bunch of different retailers through the British Airways shopping portal. And, uh, you know, re- most recently there was a Match.com uh, deal where it was 30 miles per dollar, and people were signing up for Match.com and then canceling it just to get, you know, a boatload of miles. So there's still ways that you could maximize points uh, through mm-hmm. these online shopping portals. And now, as we do with Brian Kelly on every Friday that we have him on, uh-huh. he makes us sick. The points guy, Ocean Cove Pavilion. I can't pronounce it. Turks and Caicos. Uh, Let me guess. You, fl- you you flew JetBlue for like twelve dollars and stayed in a thousand dollar a night hotel for twenty eight dollars. Tell us about your trip to Turks and Caicos. Well, you know what, Tom, you may, you know, uh, hold, hold your desk, but I actually paid for that. Amman Resorts are some of the best resorts around the world. So I actually paid for that out-of-pocket. It was $2,000 a night, uh, but I booked through Amex and got a ton of upgrades and, you know, a free bottle of Dom and all these other things. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> course, so it's not always about the, the points. It's about the perks, too. Well, this is important. This is the new trend, isn't it? Seriously, Brian, you put up money and you're treated differently. That's the new theme, isn't it? Yes, even in luxury travel. So points aren't just for bargain seekers. Even on the on the luxury side, you can always get more. And, you know, never just book through a, a hotel's website. Always try to, you know, get the best deal, whether it's booking through credit card or, you know, even virtuoso travel agents can give great value as well for luxury stays. So to, to summarize, you did this thing to Turks and Caicos. You spent the money on the hotel, but then what did you do to get the bottle of Dom? Did we, why you, do we have that here? Friday surveillance? Yes. We'll get a Friday bottle. Dom is if, definitely on well, ice. Yeah, okay. it's there, keeping it cold. <laughs> it, was, it was all through Amex and yeah. Dorian, so, you know, 2500 bucks a year for that card, but, they, you know, I have yeah. a, a personalized concierge that gets me crazy value, of these course. upgrades, so... You know, it, it can be worth it to, to pay for services like that to get, okay. you know, tons of value throughout the year. One final question, uh, Points Guy, the state of United Airlines. You know, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're rolling out their new Polaris business class. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that United will get better. Uh, but, you know, they've got, they've got a long road to go. They're, most of their business class uh, uh, is still, you know, Eight across, and, and uh, they, they've got a long way to go. But I'm optimistic for United that they're gonna they're gonna be uh, one yeah. day at least competitive. 
Brian Kelly, may you, may you avoid all the traffic at LaGuardia. Mr. <laughs> Kelly is the points guy, and uh, certainly is, he's, he's one of these young guys, folks, that truly has single-handedly changed the industry. It's just amazing what he's done. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.